Hello, I'm Hanea Ahu, bringing you the week in Parliament with Tom Fruin. Will you remember where you were when you first heard the news that John Key was resigning as Prime Minister? National's Coromandel MP Scott Simpson certainly will. If you don't mind, Mr Speaker, I seek the indulgence of the House just to tell an interesting story because this has been by any measure a momentous and historic week for uh, the Parliament and also for New Zealand. And, sir, on Monday morning when this uh, bill was being worked through diligently by the Select Committee... That bill was the Huranui Kaikoura Earthquakes Recovery Bill, which the Local Government and Environment Committee, chaired by Mr Simpson, was considering on Monday morning. Uh, Government members uh, at about uh, 12.15, having done several hours' work on the committee, received text messages from the WHIPs uh, inviting us to attend a teleconference uh, call uh, with, uh, that was due to take place in a few minutes. And so we uh, suspended the, uh, the meeting with the leave of opposition members, I might add, who were, who were very curious to know what the, the, the purpose and the portent might entail. And so what happened, Mr Speaker, was that uh, government members retired to a neighbouring committee room. We put a cell phone onto uh, uh, speaker mode and we uh, heard the news that now, of course, is very well known to us all that the Right Honourable John Key was going to resign his role as Prime Minister of New Zealand after eight years. And so then, sir, uh, we were in an interesting position as committee members because we then had to return to the committee room, uh, apply our very best poker faces, uh, very best poker faces, uh, and uh, sit before uh, uh, opposition members uh, as we continue to go through the fine detail of an important piece of uh, emergency legislation. Uh, and, for government, uh, and for government members, the, the real uh, interest came uh, about half an hour later when uh, opposition members' phones started pinging and, uh, uh, and going off. Soon everything was going off as news spread of the Prime Minister's announcement, which, as the Speaker David Carter noted in the debating chamber the next day, was not only surprising but historic. The resignation of a Prime Minister is a very rare occurrence and is deserving of the urgent attention of the House. Mr Carter said he'd received two requests on Tuesday for urgent debates on Mr Key's announcement. One from Opposition Leader Andrew Little, the other from the Leader of New Zealand First. Mr Peter's application for the urgent debate on the matter was the first one received. I therefore call on the Right Honourable Winston Peters to move that the House take note of a matter of urgent public importance. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Now, order. Before Mr Peters could get underway, there was a complaint from across the chamber. Point of order, the Honourable Jerry Browning. So, Mr Speaker, this would be uh, an urgent debate on the first occasion after an event has taken place. The event has not taken place. The Prime Minister has indicated an intention, but has not resigned. No, the Speaker says no. The announcement has taken place, and that's the matter that is important here. The Right Honourable Winston Peters. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, being the Prime Minister of a country is an achievement and holding that position for eight years is a significant feat. So let's begin this debate by remembering that and thanking the Prime Minister for his service to the country. We wish him and his family well. After that cordial start, the debate exposed a sharp divide on the nature of Mr Key's legacy. Greens co-leader Materia Toure delivered this judgment. John Key, retiring Prime Minister never put children and families first. 
At every opportunity, John Key refused to put the needs of families and children ahead of the interests of the wealthy few. And sir, this has been, this is actually the legacy of John Key. Across the chamber, Jerry Brownlee's view was, as you'd expect, quite the opposite. Mr Speaker, his legacy is a remarkable one. He will be uh, in history, I'm sure, uh, recorded as one of the great Prime Ministers of this country. But Mr Key didn't even have a legacy, according to New Zealand First MP Richard Prosser. Great Prime Ministers are remembered in history, Mr Speaker. John Key will not be remembered in history. He does not have a legacy. But Jerry Brownlee was resolute in support of his Prime Minister. He is most definitely one of the greatest leaders of the National Party. And while he has now decided to exit the stage, the scene that he has set, sir, the uh, culture that he has put in place will endure, and the fundamentals of what's been achieved under his ministry, his Prime Ministership, will continue and be well regarded and well received by New Zealanders in the coming year. Before that, though, National had some sorting out to do, as its finance minister, Bill English, acknowledged in his answer to a question on Thursday about his view on cutting taxes. Uh, well, Mr Speaker, the government announced this policy at the last budget. Uh, this week we are having a bit of an, having a bit of an internal discussion over, uh, over changes in leadership. And... Uh, Whoever's the, le- whoever's the leaders, whatever the result of the leadership uh, contest, the government will consider those options. Opposition interest in National's future leadership quickly focused on three MPs. Police Minister Judith Collins, Health Minister Jonathan Coleman and Mr English himself. The subject of this question for the Prime Minister, John Key, from Greens co-leader James Shaw. Is the real reason that New Zealand's productivity is so low because every working age New Zealander has been bored to death listening to Bill English? <laughs> Right, Honourable Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, um, if that's his test, then I should introduce him to his, his own caucus colleagues. And men. they're not exactly people I want to party with when I leave Parliament. Let me give you a clue. Mr Key answering one of the last questions he'll ever be asked in the House as Prime Minister, while Labour's finance spokesman, Grant Robertson, delved into the past for this question for Police Minister Judith Collins. Will she provide additional police resources to tackle the theft of public money, such as someone who uses a taxpayer-funded trip to China to advance their husband's business interests? Order. A question can be addressed. Well, if that was the case, then it would be. Of course it's not. Grant Robertson's caucus colleague, Annette King, had also been hunting for skeletons in the closet of her nemesis, Health Minister Jonathan Coleman. Is he prepared to fund a programme advising on the dangers of second-hand cigar smoke, blowing at people at close quarters in corporate boxes? The Honourable Dr Jonathan Coleman. No, but I think we could do with a programme on staying well past your uh, use-by date, Mrs King. <laughs> Jonathan Coleman was so pleased with that line, he repeated it when he clashed with Mrs King again on Thursday. Of course, leadership is all about hard decisions. If that member was a leader, she would have decided to leave the parliament years ago and get on with life. He's about to leave because he's about to lose. Um. (laughs) In contrast to the Minister of Health, the Attorney-General, Chris Finlayson, ruled himself out of contention before anybody could rule him in, responding to a comment from Labour's Grant Robertson in Wednesday's general debate. Before the Speaker came into the House, Mr Robertson, whose views I so greatly respect, 
uh, called out to me, why am I not standing for the leadership? I did say to him that I have the dream team, me as leader and me as deputy leader. But, uh, unfortunately, there haven't been any takers. Attorney General Chris Finlayson on Wednesday's general debate, which was followed by debate on members' bills, with two from government MPs surviving their first reading debates and being referred to the Justice and Electoral Committee, and three from opposition MPs all being denied a first reading by the same margin, the 63 of National, the Maori Party, United Future and Act, defeating the 57 of Labour, the Greens and New Zealand First. The five vacancies created on the members' order paper were filled by five more members' bills drawn in the ballot the next day. On the government's ticker, the Children, Young Persons and Their Families Advocacy Workforce and Age Settings Amendment Bill and the New Zealand Horticulture Export Authority Amendment Bill were read a third time on Tuesday. Then, resuming an extended time at 9am on Wednesday, although in parliamentary time still on Tuesday, the House passed the Rangitani or Manawatu Claim Settlement Bill and the Sale and Supply of Alcohol, Display of Low Alcohol Beverages and Other Remedial Matters Amendment Bill. Then, after question time on Thursday, the House took a break from dealing with the aftershocks of John Key's imminent departure and returned to the government's legislation in response to the other big shake-up recently, the massive 7.8 magnitude quake on November the 14th, putting the Hurunuri Kaikoura Earthquakes Recovery Bill through all its remaining stages before adjourning for the weekend. The bill was back in the debating chamber after spending almost a week with Scott Simpson's Local Government and Environment Committee, and the government's lead earthquake response minister, Jerry Brownlee, launched its third reading debate by thanking government officials for the long hours they spent working on the bill over the past week. But I also want to thank the members of the Select Committee who engaged, I think, incredibly constructively, to a point where it can be considered very much Parliament's response uh, to the needs of the Kaikoura Haranui district and right up into the Wellington district here as well. And while the quake exposed structural weaknesses in city office blocks, its effects further south were more down to earth as National's Kaikoura MP Stuart Smith reminded his fellow MPs in the bill's third reading debate. I thought I might take a little moment to um, reflect on some of the issues that uh, are affecting daily life in that area. For example, uh, it's only just recently that the dairy farmers whose uh, cow sheds were destroyed in the earthquake and whose cows had to walk some distance to be milked, affecting their production, uh, causing some real questions about uh, animal health had that had to uh, continue for some time. And those, ca- those cows have now been uh, able to get out of, of the Kaikoura area and are being uh, looked after elsewhere. And that's a huge relief. Uh, to those uh, farmers and the people of Kaikoura. Stuart Smith also put this question to the Minister of Finance, Bill English. What is the Treasury's advice on the impact of the Kaikoura elect- uh, earthquake? The Honourable Bill English. Well, Mr Speaker, as, uh, as that member would know uh, better than anyone in the House, the earthquake has had a major impact on families and businesses in his electorate. Uh, However, the earthquakes are not expected to disrupt the overall momentum of the economy. Treasury estimates that the total cost of the extensive government support uh, to the affected communities and the rebuilding of transport links will be two to three billion. Uh, In this financial year, the government is booking a cost of around a billion because that's what we expect to spend uh, before June next year, mainly on uh, supporting EQC claims 
and on the immediate response and recovery. As well as dealing with the legislation flowing from that earthquake, the Local Government and Environment Committee had other fish to fry, as Hanea Ahu reports. The Local Government and Environment Committee met to hear a petition from Miriama Rebecca Prickett asking the House to acknowledge that just over 13,000 people have signed a petition seeking legislation making swimmable the minimum standard for fresh water. Paul Prendergast, a public health engineer with the Ministry of Health, told the committee that only a small percentage of the thousands of notified cases of contamination can be linked directly to fresh water. Um, It's very difficult to link cases of disease with recreational water because the diseases that can be transmitted uh, by ingesting um, the water can also be obtained um, from contact with contaminated food, person-to-person contact, Uh, with animals and contaminated drinking water with same sorts of gastrointestinal diseases. Mr Prendergast also told the committee he was surprised that no microbiological standards had been put in place. And and the argument from the regional councils was we're just copying overseas standards, we're different in New Zealand, the, the risks are different, we don't have this large population and the large sewage discharges, we have different aspects. But I would point out that our three main notified diseases, Campylobacter, Giardia and Crypto, are all able to be carried by animals. Public health engineer Paul Prendergast, appearing before the Local Government and Environment Committee, considering the petition of Miriama Rebecca Prickett on making swimmable the minimum standard for fresh water in New Zealand. Meanwhile, along in Committee Room 4, the Commerce Committee met to conduct the annual review of Television New Zealand. Labour's broadcasting spokeswoman Claire Curran questioned its chief executive, Kevin Kimrick, as to whether he considered TVNZ to be a public broadcaster. We see ourselves as being fully committed to meeting the obligations we have under the TVNZ Act. I don't see any reference to public broadcasting within that Act. Um, so it depends how you define it, Claire. I mean, I think we're in the business of delivering the content that New Zealanders want of you. Um, if we do that, we think we've got a viable business. If we put content out that has marginal audience interest, then we're going to go out of business really quickly. Television New Zealand's Chief Executive, Kevin Kenrick, appearing before the Commerce Committee for TVNZ's annual review. And the House Committee ploughing through thousands of submissions on its inquiry into public attitudes to euthanasia has been handed another hot potato, as Tom Fruin reports. Members on that committee now have another highly controversial issue on their plate, a bill giving district health boards the power to make decisions and give directions about the fluoridation of local body drinking water supplies in their areas. Introduced last month, the bill had its first reading yesterday afternoon with Associate Health Minister Peter Dunn beginning the debate by praising the virtues of fluoridation. We know from the international evidence and from our own experience that fluoridation is safe, it is effective and it is cost effective. Fluoridation offers significant gains at little cost compared to other interventions and all age groups benefit from fluoridation. Mr Dunn said the decision on whether water supplies were fluoridated was currently made by territorial local authorities. And 27 out of 67 of them had decided not to do so. And that means that about 54% only of our population is receiving fluoridated water. And that level of coverage has not changed 
or increased in the last 15 years. Peter Dunn said fluoridation had become a highly contentious issue. Now some might ask why did the government not simply mandate fluoridation and be done with it? Well the government's view is that generally speaking population health issues are best addressed through the elected district health boards which ensures not only the engagement of health professionals but also maintains a high degree of democratic community involvement. This change will enable decisions about whether or not to fluoridate to be made from a health perspective, which may in turn extend fluoridation coverage and improve oral health in New Zealand. But Labour's Annette King herself, a former dental nurse, was not convinced that Mr Dunn's reliance on DHBs was the best approach. I guarantee, Mr Speaker, we will, all of us on the Health Select Committee will be inundated by text messages, emails um, and, and letters telling us that we should not be approaching this, me- this uh, measure. But I say that our Select Committee has shown over time that we are prepared to look at the tough issues, and I'm sure we will, but I want to see if there is a better way of doing this that has real coverage uh, of fluoridated water supply rather than, as I've said, this halfway measure. Annette King's caucus colleague David Parker was of like mind. Why is the government kicking this down the road and adding to compliance costs at a regional level by requiring a separate decision to be taken in every district health board in New Zealand rather than the government acting in the interests of all New Zealanders and taking the decision that on the basis of science not witchcraft, not scaremongering on the basis of science that we are satisfied that water in New Zealand should be fluoridated. David Parker and his Labour colleagues joined all other parties in supporting the Health Fluoridation of Drinking Water Amendment Bill except New Zealand First, represented in the first reading debate by List MP Rhea Bond. New Zealand First are absolutely opposing this bill because it takes away the decision-making process um, from locals to decide for what's best for locals. Um, And the issue is a hot potato and by simply being passed from one buck to the next is simply not good enough, Mr Speaker. Um, And we do think that the public does need to be fully informed and we do think that the public have a right uh, to take this into consideration and each area should actually be holding a referendum and make it binding, Mr Speaker. New Zealand First List MP Rhea Bond in the first reading debate on the Health Fluoridation of Drinking Water Amendment Bill, which her party stood alone in voting against being referred to the Health Select Committee. Meanwhile, Annette King also spoke in the preceding SNAP debate on the Prime Minister's intention to resign, speculating on his possible successor. Which knife will be the sharpest one? Will it be Judith Collins' stiletto? You know, the one that slips in very, very easily. It slips in when you're not watching. It's called the silent killer of ambition. And then we've got Jonathan Coleman. Well, he, he will have the scalpel. And uh, he'll be wielding it uh, with total lack of precision because he knows how good he is, even if everybody else doesn't. And so we're going to see between him and Bill English what's been called the Battle of the Mustards. The Colmans and the English Mustards are going to be now battling over the leadership. And Annette King clashed again with the Minister of Health in Thursday's Question Time. Honourable Annette King. (laughs) Thank you, Mr Speaker. My My questions to the Minister of Health. 
What indication, if any, has the Minister of Finance given him for vote health in Budget 2017 that led him to say, quote, I think we've got to be very careful before we look at tax cuts. We've got to make sure we're properly funding health and education to the level that people expect. Mr Speaker, the member will understand my excellent colleague Bill English and I have been busy on other matters and I'd like to say he'll make a very fine Prime Minister one day, might be Monday, let's see. Um, <laughs> but look, every year... Every year, listen to this, you'll like this. One, yeah, one day or Monday, yeah, yeah. Every year, Mr English says the same thing to me. He says, we will lift our investment in health, but only, Dr Coleman, if you guarantee not to cut electives by 2,200 when your budget has gone up by 3 billion, not to cut general surgery by 1,500, paediatric surgery by 1,000, Plastic and burn surgery in ear, nose and throat by 1300 despite getting that extra $3 billion. And then he says, bottom line, but we must not, absolutely must not, force over 440 patients to fly to Australia for basic cancer treatment. And above all, Mr English says to me, do not let the media say after six years, in quotes, it is inconceivable that a government could spend so much money and make the system worse. I don't know. Order. Who do you Order. think it might have been about? Order. The answer is certainly very long. Um, point, point of order, Mr Speaker. Point of order, Mr order. Speaker. Point of order, uh, I, I believe um, the, the Minister said he was quoting um, an official document from the Minister of Finance, and I'd like him to take order. it, please. It's very easily resolved. Was the member of the Minister quoting from an official document? I didn't say that. What I said is that every year he order. says the no. same things order. to me. Order. I'm simply asking... Was the minister quoting from an official document? No, but he was. No. <laughs> <laughs> then that matter's easily resolved. Supplementary, Supplementary question, the Honourable Annette King. Does the level of fund, health funding people expect include access to affordable GP visits, the latest and best drugs that Australians have been getting for years but New Zealanders are paying for, more than the miserable one-hour-a-week home help for a 96-year-old, and eye treatment before people go blind. The Honourable Dr Jonathan Coleman. Well, look, Mr Speaker, it includes lots of things, including the dramatic lift in elective surgery under this government, the massive increase in first specialist appointments, the 6,000 extra doctors, and there's an absolute uh, expectation on behalf of the public that we'll do more, not less, and they certainly don't want to have to fly to Australia for the basics of a health system like they used to have to. Supplementary question, Mr Speaker. Supplementary question, the Honourable Annette King. If leadership is the ability to take hard decisions, why did he take over a year before increasing the drug budget to fund melanoma drugs for cancer patients, many who died waiting for him to take action and to show some compassion and care? The Honourable Dr John Well, of course, leadership is all about hard decisions, and if that member was a leader, she would have decided to leave the Parliament years ago and get on with life. He's about to leave because he's about to lose. Um, <laughs> is this question, a supplementary question? Order. Supplementary question, thank, the Honourable Thank you, Mr Annette. Speaker. Why has he decided to sabotage 
billing a second shot at leadership by saying health needs to be properly funded at the level people expect, implying the reasons for the growing problems in health are not his fault, but the Scrooge-like behaviour of the Minister of Finance. Well, look, I think the Honourable I, Dr Jonathan Carman. I think actually one feature of what's gone over the, uh, down over the last few days is the excellent collegial spirit in which the competition has been held. And I can, I can tell you what, I can tell you what, this is, this is important because they're not used to this, but whoever comes out of that room is going to have the total backing of the whole National Party. And if... This is very important, this bit. And I tell you what, if it's Bill English, I will be 100% behind him. I won't do a cunliffe to Goff. And Bill English, should he be the Prime Minister, will lead us to a great victory in 2017. So you guys will be there for a lot longer yet. Supplementary question, Mr Speaker. Supplementary question, the Honourable Annette King. Is the real reason he was so eager to stand as leader, apart from naked ambition, Utu? because he agrees with Judith Collins that Bill English has held back funding from portfolios like health and education and has made him look like a loser. In so far as this ministerial responsibility... The, the only U2 we're seeing in New Zealand is the 50% polling that the public's inflicting on uh, the Labour Party because they're absolutely sick to death of that crowd over there and there's no way they want them ever back in government and, quite frankly, they're unlikely to see the Labour government uh, back here for a good two or three terms yet. On Tuesday, the Speaker David Carter delivered on his promise to respond to several questions addressed to him in the previous week by New Zealand First. On the 1st of December, Ron Marks sought a considered ruling on whether the Speaker is a member of the Government for the purpose of appropriations to the Parliamentary Service. The request arose from my ruling on the 29th of November where I did not permit an urgent debate on the plan for a new parliamentary buildings on the basis that an urgent debate is a way of holding the government accountable for an action for which it is responsible and the Speaker is not part of the government. Subsequently, I've received a letter from the Right Honourable Winston Peters on the matter. The Speaker is deemed to be the responsible Minister for a number of agencies including the Office of the Clerk, the Parliamentary Service and the three Officers of Parliament for the purposes of the Public Finance Act 1989. That does not make the Speaker a member of the Government, however. Instead, it is to provide some oversight of and accountability for the activities of agencies that form part of the legislative rather than the executive branch. The only way to become a minister is to be appointed by the Governor-General on the recommendation of the Prime Minister. I refer members to Chapter 2 of the Cabinet Manual. The Speaker, on the other hand, is elected directly by the House as its spokesperson and presiding officer. The purpose of an urgent debate is to hold the Government accountable for an action for which it is responsible, according to Speaker's ruling 2072. The Speaker is not part of the Government and in recognition of the special position of the Speaker as a presiding officer cannot take part in debate or answer oral questions in the House. I draw members' attention to Speaker's ruling 
2157, which states that a second call in an urgent debate always goes to a minister so that the minister speaking for the government has an extra period to respond. There can be no question of the Speaker elected by the House to speak for it, ever speaking for the government. The proposal of a new parliamentary building has not yet been finalised and there is no appropriation to fund it. There will be ways to scrutinise the proposal if it receives Cabinet approval. The funding of the building project would be contained in the estimates for vote parliamentary service and could be examined in the House and Select Committee during the estimates processes. The proposed building will also continue to be discussed at the Parliamentary Service Commission, of which New Zealand First is a member. However, the urgent debate procedure is not available to debate matters for which the Speaker is responsible. Now for a look ahead at Parliament's final sitting week in 2016, here's the Leader of the House, Jerry Brownlee. Mr Speaker, when the House resumes on Tuesday the 13th of December, the Government will look to complete the first reading of the Port England Development Enabling Bill, the second reading of the Taxation Business Tax Exchange of Information and Remedial Matters Bill, the Subordinate Legislation Confirmation Bill and a number of other bills on the order paper. The House will rise for the year on Wednesday the 14th of December at the conclusion of the adjournment debate which will confirm the House sitting dates for 2017. The Leader of the House, Jerry Brownlee. Finally, no week would be complete without a patsy question from National List MP Chris Bishop. Oh, thank you very much, Mr Speaker. To the, uh, to the Minister. How is the Government helping students use the internet for learning? The Honourable Hikiparata. Tēnākwe, Mr Speaker. Tēnākwe. Unfortunately, no time left for the answer. I'm Tom Fruin, and this programme was made with funding from Parliament.